But this goes this goes right back to the very core, the reason superheroes exists, right? And the 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 analogy that that we've always used is um, is the times table of movement, right? So you get to secondary school, and um, and these kids can't combine sums, and they have no times table. So, but but what they're so the secondary school teacher goes, so what levels are they at? I don't know. What are we doing? You know, okay. Uh, here's a quadratic equation, and uh, here's here's um, area, and um, here over here is a little bit of algebra. Um, there, but that's it. And then each year they'll give them a little bit, a different bit of a quadratic equation and some algebra and some area to figure out, but they'll never contextualize any of it. And there is no progression through those threads through secondary school either. It's just the sport, go and play it. And so those kids that already know how to do those, they already have those tools to do algebra, the beginnings or at any level, any depth, some kids will have a great depth of, of understanding of algebra. Some kind of loosely, uh, loosely get it and might be able to do some of those sums but it's never contextualized and it's never um, around uh, nurturing that kid's understanding of what it is or developing those skills to apply to that thing. It's just sport, go and do it. Here, here's some different, here's a different uh, algebraic equation, table tennis. Uh, this month we're doing um, uh, a different um, equation. We call it rugby. That's it. And, and they've never taught them the skills to link any of those things together. And that's our job as PE teachers. Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast, a podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone looking to perform at their highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with the platform to perform. I'm your host as always, Todd Davidson, and on episode 47 of the Platform to Perform podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by the creator of Strength Lab Superheroes, Simon Brundish. In today's podcast, myself and Simon discuss why the physical education curriculum isn't physically educating our children, why sports science might actually be holding back both youth and elite athletes, how Simon would approach the development of physical literacy in children, and how Strength Life Superheroes came to fruition, and how Simon would recommend using this in a coaching setting. Your intro is very professional. I know, I try and try my best, just uh, ruining it with the um, background somewhat. Yeah. <laughs> um, so why do you do what you do, Simon? Um, quick uh, timeline, I'm old, so I was like first generation of sports scientist, maybe, I think I was the third year at, at University of Birmingham. Um, and what do you do as a career path? Because there was no career path. We have all SNCs in the country complaining about the pathway now. There was no pathway because there was no job sucker. So uh, the trailblazer, you can just call me a trailblazer. Um, so we have to kind of figure out how you're going to pay, pay bills and what really inspires and stimulates. And, and I've always been much more about uh, the day-to-day, -day, what did I do today, rather than how much money did I make today and how what fulfills me and challenges and I've been curious. And so over, over the course of 15 years or so working with uh, right across any kind of spectrum of general population of doing 
uh, aerobics classes to 150 uni students to grannies in a class to um, local amateur sports to world champion uh, sprinters and Premier League football and um, uh, uh, county level cricket and international basketball. So I, I've never felt myself as any particular of preferring any particular sport over any other. Like there's been there was a whole influx of rugby um, fairly early in my career. That was the early adopters of SNC. Um, of which SNC didn't exist when I was early in my career. So anyway, long story short, ramble, ramble, ramble. I had kids, discovered I liked working with kids, my own mainly, um, and my wife is a primary school PE teacher and I kind of helped out at her school a little bit and really enjoyed it and saw that the quality of um, their PE experience wasn't what I was expecting. Um, so we formulated in our facility stuff, um, classes that kids can can uh, discover sporting skills and actually their movement skills and can you catch and oh, they can't even stand on one leg. Um, so we kind of uh, regressed those into really, really uh, basic games of which they're starting to learn skills and then uh, matter their own body. Uh, around the same time, five, this was like five years ago, we um, quickly for superheroes, uh, the government offered primary schools uh, £10,000 to um, develop physical literacy. That was literally their, their only statement that came with this £10,000. Here, £10,000, ring fence, you can't spend it on anything else but improve physical literacy. It was called the school sports premium. Um, and a year later, they kind of looked at what happened with it and, and schools just spent it on minibuses. Um, and without guidance, they had no idea what to do. But my wife asked me how what this means and if I could help in any way. So we did a little bit of research, looked through the what physical literacy meant. And it means anything to anybody. Um, it's, it's really, it's, it's the opposite of ubiquitous. Um, there is no defined but also it might be the most defined term, dependent on if you're a middle-aged cardigan wearer from Norwich or you are um, a, an SNC that works with Olympians. It, it, it means so many different things. So we kind of looked in our realm of um, movement specialists, SNCs, at the best coaches in the world, so Vern Gambetta, so Kelvin Giles, um, and then looked at the research. We got um, uh, Avery Fagenbaum, Mark Tremblay, uh, and then later on Joe Eisenman, and um, looked to put together some kind of toolbox, which formulated into a pathway, um, and then our sil syllabus progressive matrix, basically of skills, and that's kind of where we're. That'd be very nice, very nice. And with all the different populations you've mentioned there, um, do you feel like there's a, a linking philosophy or how you would go about, say, I don't know, training five-year-olds versus those eight-year-old grandmas that you mentioned? Well, uh, yeah, one of the things I discovered, because I, I literally have uh, an 81-year-old client who relatively pays us to train every day since 2002. Um, and um, he is a, an, a rock star um, and his wife is 
63 now, so also 18, 19 years of training. Um, and trying to be as reflective as possible. This is going through phases of, of uh, the culture of SNC. And maybe 10 years ago, there was like 12 years ago, maybe um, just after the advent of UKSCA, and then um, there was this big conference called UXEM, um, where um, sports medicine and sports science tried to converge over a conference. And it was a fantastic thing, but it never kind of took off after that. And, the, and, and they started to introduce a, a little bit more structure and reflective practice. And, and I started writing stuff down and how about my approach, what's, what do I enjoy, what sets me apart. And the things really that I discovered were that every, the, the, in the marketplace, most of the coaches I speak to and most of the coaches I observed, particularly in S&C, worked at, they, with, with kids, they would coach them as though they were um, less able international sports people so the goal was always the international sports person and they would just regress the the sort of a less able version of that and my approach was really with 80 year olds or tennis players or international footballers was to treat them like they were seven-year-olds and and expand from that core movement quality of a seven-year-old and enthusiasm of a seven-year-old and try to make it as, as play-like as possible and then expand um, how far you can reach, how far you can jump from this position, how much, how much body control do you have from here? Can you catch it? Can, and then start to add weights rather than look at this number, we need to hit two times back squat. Well, I don't care if you can hit two times back squat if you can't touch your toes or if you can't reach uh, one and a half meters for a ball on one leg without falling over. So I regressed it all back to basically being a seven-year-old and I, I would apply that to everybody in every context. And then we would expand to their limits from there. So it was a very individualized approach for everybody. And just, this is something I've kind of, loosely thought about for a few years um i remember training a guy in his 70s and um when i managed to borrow some lecture slides off um st mary's they were talking about how the body develops in terms of from a baby right around to being like a 90 year old and almost that you come full circle in the sense of for example i think it's first you can lift your head up and then the core starts to strengthen a little bit and i was thinking actually looking at my nan when she was still with us it was always literally you go in reverse. Like, for example, as soon as you lose the ability to stand and sit, it's like, great, you can move your arms and maybe raise your legs, but you can't stand and sit. I was thinking, actually, just pretty much what you've said there, do the elderly and the young need to be trained in a similar way in the sense of, um, like you said, very basic movements and almost, yes, they need to be strong, but actually they need to probably be able to move in different ways. They need to have strength, a little bit of strength in different positions, because I think, as an example, if you're an 80 year old and you fall on the ground, you're yes, not going to, yeah, you're not going to rise in this sort of textbook squat or even like, I don't know, a Turkish get up sort of way. It's going to be a bit awkward. It's not going to be, oh, well, you've got to put this hand here and this hand here. Um, so, yeah, just listening to you talk then, I was like, actually, what does an elderly adult need? Probably not five sets of five back squat. But that's really interesting right they use those too because another question i get asked a lot is is who are who do i enjoy working with most and i get something 
out of everybody. The least, my least favorite cohort, my least favorite demographic is 20 year old bloke, 25 year old bloke. I don't, I don't enjoy working with elite, elite um, professional footballers particularly, but sportsmen is just, I like that least of any of the cohorts I work with because I feel like, going back to the first thing I said, at the end of the day, what did I achieve? Nothing. I picked up some water bottles. I made him squat the thing. I counted the number of squats that he was going to do because he was only going to do that. Did I make him better? No, not really. Um, and and in a big grand, we could go off at a grand tangent here because I'm currently of the thinking, I'm not sure how much sports science improves human performance at the, at the extreme level. I don't think we improve ultimate human performance the thing that that uh, an awful lot of snc's and sports scientists like to latch onto that that's the thing they do and i don't think it is anymore i thoroughly thoroughly don't believe that but going back to this child and 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 um elderly you were saying that that some mary's were saying how this cycle happens so i believe in um pre adulthood and then the post adulthood in the pensioner years are the least the least well researched the least well documented the least well practiced training areas i don't believe in most of the science that um uh, i see most of the literature i see in the in the um, youth market and i don't believe any of it in the in the elderly market um, I don't believe that you get um, less able to move, less able to produce force, less. I don't believe any of that. I believe inactivity causes that. Yeah. And that inactivity can happen at 25. And at 60, you've just had more time for it to have occurred. And I've got 80-year-old, as I say, that literally box jumps and overhead squats, and he's got two replaced knees. And there is nothing he can't do. He just probably takes a little bit longer to recover from it. And why would you reduce those um, challenges? Because your birth certificate is from a long time ago. That makes no sense to me. I track, um, so now everybody is testing or monitoring. And thanks to the Apple Watch, we can do like HRV. It's just an AP regular. But I literally have got data most up until three years ago, every weekday, what, uh, no, every week since 2002 with some of our clients and this one old guy and, and HRV is predictive stress. So I can see uh, you can actually predict, oh, that, well, if you've got enough data, this isn't right. He's going to get ill and you can spot that he's going to get ill. But also um, I can see because of using uh, regular monitoring that his uh, cardiac response or his rest or his resting heart rate, the effects of his resting heart rate depend on how on his training volume. And all this stuff aligns perfectly with what it would if he was 25. And he's 80 and he was 60. Do you know what I mean? So he innately should be getting worse and he's not. Only gets worse when he goes on holiday for three months because he hasn't been training. So I don't believe, yeah. I, 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 I like the elderly market. I like the, um, uh, the under-adult market. 
because I think we can make the biggest impact with those two areas. Yeah, and it's funny because um, I've chatted to mutual friends of ours uh, offline and they've said stuff like, oh, you know, what's your niche market for your podcast? And uh, I won't mention names, so I had a good friend of ours literally send me back a screenshot and it's like, here you're talking to these people in high-performance sport and here you're talking about people with how to deal with five-year-olds. And it's like, well, that's just, I feel most energised from working with younger kids, but I'm also part geeky and enjoy I suppose the physiological adaptations but i remember a chat that we had um a conference um a while ago um so i'll just go down that tangent if you will um but when you were saying about how much have we actually improved human performance at the elite level and you said something along the lines of is if force plate data was the answer then we would be seeing these performances um so what other things i suppose what other things would you chuck into that bucket of it's easy for us to feel confident, but are we actually improving performance? Is there any other things that... Um, oh, God, well, just easily, the most very obvious thing is if you look at the world records at the Olympic, in Olympic events, look at world records at the Olympics. There's, there's one uptick in any of real strand of, of uh, the athletic, of track and field, um, of human performance. And, and that was the early 90s of women when suddenly they took steroids too um, and and we're now about um like in some some of those sports we're at a 20 percent drop in in those speed like no one's getting close to those anymore or if you look at um uh, the great mo farah dominating world um endurance sports yet he was 15 percent off the split off world record speeds while he was dominating so he was the best in the world, and nobody was close to those early millennial times. Like, we, there is no evidence that we're pushing human capabilities. All we're doing is removing the fatty from the Premier League. So, we, so the minimum, so we're not pushing ceilings, we're, we are um, expanding the floor, basically. We have we have raised the standard of the floor, but we've made it more accessible because our programs and pathways have, have created better quality athletes. So there are, so the so average Joe now in the Premier League can run um, 11.6k, 600 meters of sprint of high speed distance. You know, it, the, the the average. So so we're not we haven't improved the the um, the elite levels. We've just improved the average guy up to somewhere near closer to the elite levels. So now uh, Ronaldo doesn't stand out from being this behemoth. So we're getting fewer. If you look at using the Premier League as, a, as an example, we could use rugby because that would be a better example. But um, I'm probably uh, understanding the, the football better. So um, whenever there is a new generation of of uh athlete come through so in the premier league we had um a game changer was Wenger because he suddenly had um the trust in um Vieira and you've got a six foot four athletic behemoth he was rapid he'd get about the pitch more than anybody else and he was huge and then we had Vieira um Thierry Henry who took that on as a whole different level and then 
football started to recruit guys that looked like them and they could see the value in their physical performance. So suddenly you got rid of Matthew Letissier's and you replaced them with guys that were just lesser skilled Thierry Henry's. So the standard just rose of, of, that, of the speed, but the actual top speed never did. And we've done that across all sports. You can see it in tennis. Now the big, um, the women, Serena broke in 18 years ago or whatever, and completely dominant because she was bigger, faster, stronger than everybody else. Was that training or did she happen to just be a different demographic than everybody else and is bigger, faster, stronger? She is un undoubtedly the best in the world ever in her sport. Is she the only person in the world that could do the things she has done? Don't know because because the door was always closed to her demographic. So we just opened the demographic to, to a new sport and we've highlighted that power is probably more important in tennis than we thought it was. It's not just about being able to do it for four hours because it never actually, it only happens like in, in less than 2% of games that there's a, a more than two hour game. So um, we've not, we, we've, We've not really progressed the highest level. It's just about raising the quality of, of athlete. That's all. And without going on, without going on a complete tangent, um, I don't know whether you've listened to. Um, oh God, the name's now going to lose me. Uh, Science for Sport podcast on the two. Ross Tucker. Yes, that's the one. Um, but yeah, just saying. Actually, he doesn't count the two-hour marathon because he's like, we've not actually improved human physiology. We've got very good at making it more efficient uh, so for example the shoes the car the pacemakers having an ideal marathon course um, making sure that the temperature is ideal um, but we've not actually pushed human performance and therefore uh, he doesn't count it so it kind of sounds like so the thing that we've the, the thing that we found we we now we've sighted the shit out of this so that we know all of the um, environmental constraints we can manipulate the environment but we've not actually, we're not actually manipulating the output of the human. I'm going to have that as my uh, little tagline for the podcast. Science the shit out of it. Not the way you expected to go, is it? <laughs> no, not, not on a podcast uh, designed to organise strength life superheroes, but it's all good. It's all and good. Primary kids. <laughs> <laughs> um, ironically, that leads nicely into... Um, bad statistics and uh, measuring this ambiguous term that is uh, physical literacy. Um, so segueing into that slightly, I remember reading a tweet of yours, which was countering people who said that Liverpool players were more fatigued than last season. And therefore that's resulted in um, decrements in performance. So uh, just using that as a little segue, um, how should we be measuring this uh, physical literacy um, if indeed it should be measured at all? I would start to, to my, my fundamental measurement of physical literacy is to have some kind, uh, to have a specific toolbox of um, drills, skills and challenges. And my measurement would be time doing them. That should be it. Just how opportunity to do to practice work on these things because i think we're so far behind the evolutionary human curve of of these things that that we have we uh, that our science and technology has made us lazier slower 
more sloth-like and sedentary, that we're undoing the natural evolutionary curve. I don't care about measuring how good those good kids are and making the bad ones fail. I just want them to, uh, to do more. If you practice more, e even if we expand it just to S&C, if you get a kid and they're in the gym and you give them five exercises to do whenever they come in and they come in four times a week, they will just get better. I don't care. Do we really need to measure how much better? We just know they're going to get better. So just adherence is fundamentally the most important thing. If you're, if we're wanting to quantify improvement for, um, say for Ofsted, um, would be a good example because they they love a statistic and parents they like uh, they like to see a trajectory. How superheroes works is that we have. Um, objective binary did they do this did they get into this shape or not so we award uh, five stars up to five stars for a skill and kids can um, assess each other did they did their, their bottom get below their knees yes or no um and then that as long as it's been adequately um uh, appro uh, appropriately um written in the first place so it's, there is a progressive a progression in complexity or volume or um, intensity then you can start to develop a tra trajectory of mastery of a skill set that's kind of our thinking i really would prefer not to but kids do like to see some level of objective progression and they they like to see that they've achieved something but from a, a sports science testing battery of I could not like to see less um, octa jump or jump mats or timing gates in a in a kid's school. I don't want to see um, even secondary school kids getting shown around an elite performance lab. I don't I don't want them to have that experience. I want them to go and master shapes and um, and then uh, external stimulus challenges of can you climb over this jump around this and then roll while catching a ball i don't know how easy that is to um test for i think some of the stuff that uh, our friend james uh, talks about and uh, having an athletic skills track would uh, and then you just time it. i think that the if the outcome of this parkour challenge need it requires some kind of physical skill development and the faster you do it you've obviously mastered them better probably um or you're just better at the course but you being better at the course means you've had to adapt some kind of skill that is transferable so that probably is the best thing and there's there's a couple of things that um there's a couple of things i've jotted down just as you've said this so the first thing and we'll talk about this in a second for me is something you said in another podcast which is um and it happens again a lot in education whether kids you're stalking get, me aren't you? secretly yeah secretly i am <laughs> i do like to do my homework but um it was saying about in education settings there's a big drive for our kids getting more knowledgeable or they're just understanding the test better um so therefore for example if i don't know you test kids in a year's time oh shock horror their jump went up because they knew how to do the jump chest versus for example, they're bending their hips better or they're coordinating their arm swing better. Um, but what I like about what you've said there is you basically said, right, as long as we're getting markers on the process, we'll get the outcome. Whereas I think SNC, we're guilty of let's just measure the outcome and 
you know, I'm sure we've all been there where you've either had to test kids because of technical coaches and you're like, well, I can tell you in the warm up that they can't coordinate. I can tell you in the warm up that their sprint time is going to be bad. But now you want me to put a number on it to tell you just how bad they are or to be able to stroke my own ego and show you that there'll be six weeks of anything, any structure, they're going to be better. And then we'll lord S and C as best practice. Yeah, it's crazy. And and if we uh, delve into that a little bit, um, if you're testing, so uh, working in a football academy, um, we have to test at just a, I don't even know. The, the director is absolutely fine, loves my methods and doesn't care for any kind of testing, but the coaches and then parents want some kind of testing to feel like they're in a high performance setting. So we do some, um, very limited. But the thing is, if you're doing a bleep test, which is what they like, or 3015, the kids, if you do it three times in a month, they'll get better because the kids know how to, they, they learn the skill and learn how to cheat. Um, but on top of that, you working with kids on any given day, they could be completely different. And particularly working with girls and teenage girls, what you said about warm-ups, so important. I could tell you in the warm-up who's going to um, have uh, on the jump mat, who's going to perform better than others. I can tell you, um, we have what, so basically we have a bit wobbly days. Some the girls know, I, I, I can see in the, literally, I'm not exaggerating, I can see in the first 10 seconds of a warm-up if a girl's going to have a wobbly day. And, there's, and, and if they're going to have a wobbly day, they just do what they can. There is no judgment on what they do. You're just going to fall over. We'll probably laugh at you a little bit. Um, you can laugh at yourself because it's one of those things, but it's just a wobbly day. Um, and they literally wobble and fall over while they're doing a plank. And it's very, very common. And that day might be test day. And so what does that mean? What are we proving here? I know as a coach, I can see my kids develop. Do you need me to put a number on it? I like to do it. I, I, I create a, um, a triangular skills model. So I have a coachability um, uh, talent. So uh, natural athleticism, basically, and then a skill. And then I award my subjective view on that, um, on that triangular graph, basically a little triangle radar. And we try to fill it as much as possible, but you can't get around. Some kids are gonna be faster than others because they're born genetically more gifted that way. Um, but you can, with culture, change how coachable they are. Um, and you can then also with, with good skill and good coaching environment, nurture how athletic they become. So you can you can fill that as as best as possible with strategic planning and goals in mind and creating the right environment. And they know this from each other. But you but create de determining whether or not some kid has performed well because they jumped higher or they pushed more force into the ground that day um, compared to six weeks ago. I just think it's so reductive, counterproductive, and in this current environment where we have very little relative or actual FaceTime developing these kids if we're wasting it by lining them up and then testing them. Shoot me. Yeah. And I quite like what you were saying uh, earlier in the podcast about, and this is how I've done my virtual PE because it's so, because we, for safeguarding reasons, we're not allowed to have the kids' cameras on and whatever. Um, so the coaching is 
almost differentiating itself as all right see how far you can reach like we were messing around with um if you've seen any of gmb fitness's content but they break skills down very well because they often deal with older people trying to learn gymnastic based skills for the first time and they'll literally be like right see how far you can move without falling over in um for example a forward roll progression um and it's like, see how much of this you do. So rather than saying, for example, see how many reps you can do in 30 seconds, which again, I'll get on my soapbox if I end up talking about that for too long um, with training kids. I am fine with that. I'm fine with that as a metabolic challenge. If that's what the aim is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, the issue I have with it is a lot of the kids I work with, like we did, um, for example, as a department, we did um, a squat challenge where they have to stack four toilet rolls up. How many can you do in 60 seconds? And they were like, right, send us your videos. You get house point for it. And then I was looking at some of them. I'm like, those toilet rolls are pretty high. And I didn't see you touch it once. Um, but thank you for sending me the video. Um, but no, all fun and games. Um, but yeah, I don't mind that sort of stuff if I feel like they move well enough to either A, justify it, or if they're engaged well enough to enjoy it. Um, the issue I have is a lot of times you'll get in some of my classes, you have two kids who are naturally sporty who will be like, when are we doing the bleep test? When are we doing some more running? And then the other 28 kids who, you know, would probably rather flush their head down the toilet than be made to do a bloody bleep test. Um, but yeah, it's going down to how well they can move. It reminds me of another podcast I did where we were talking about physical literacy and being a good mover and is a good mover the person who jumps the highest, sprints the fastest, um, can squat the squat the most weight or is it the person you can just drag and drop into any sporting environment they haven't necessarily been coached in the skill like you said with the parkour courses and they've just got that movement toolbox to be able to adapt and to be honest i'm not so sure when i've worked with kids and when i work with more elite athletes that the ones who are physically superior are always necessarily better at their sport obviously there's a lot of context missing from that um, but that's all where my thinking's been going of late. I I would um, I pose a question to that in that you get that kid who is has a really broad movement vocabulary, right? Would you would you question the uh, the dude who was brought up in a house whose dad was a builder? and uncle was an electrician and other uncle was a carpenter and uh, his mom panic and had uh, over the course of his 16 years, couldn't read or write very well, just enough to get by at school, but he could change your bulb. He could fit your, uh, uh, he could change a tire. He could change a spark plug and he could lay the plumbing in your house probably didn't have any qualifications in those. He probably wasn't the best plumber in the world or he couldn't go and change a, uh, um, a car, a, a Formula One, whatever, but he had a really broad physical um, range of skills, right? If, my question would be, if you, if you gave that kid two years at Mercedes working with Lewis Hamilton's car, and the people around there that could teach him that, would he be more or less likely to excel in that than a kid who had owned, had never, who didn't have any of those skills that started? But 
only worked as a car mechanic. And my thinking is that he will think in a, in a more rounded way, be more curious, practically curious about problem solving. And, um, and he, the outcome might be a little bit higher. That's my feeling. It's just that that kid from a prime, from a movement setting has not specialized in a skill long enough to excel at that one particular skill as well as another kid. That's all. But he has this broad variety and he probably could get to that skill level given a quarter of the time that the original kid that's only dedicated to that time. And isn't that the point? Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, yeah, it's, for example, if you had, if you were teaching your own kids to jump and all you did every day was, I'm not going to teach you standing long jump, teach you standing long jump versus going to expose you to many different hops, jumps, leaps, landings, twisting, rotation, um, yeah, um, I definitely had somewhere that I was going with that. Um, I've completely, completely forgotten. But yeah, by building that base and then being able to pick from it. Yeah. And then again, we could talk about other things like burnout, becoming bored with the subject, um, not being able to perform a movement. Like as soon as, for example, a standing long jump turns into a layup in basketball, it's like, oh God, I've never had to coordinate left versus right. And now the hand's involved and now... I'm doing other things. Um, but I think PE as a general thing shouldn't necessarily be like basketball, cricket, rugby, hockey, whatever, but it should be developing that movement toolbox. So then if you want to apply it to those sports, you can. You need, you need, going back to the original like uh, conversation we had about, um, about what we do in elite sports and pushing human performance. Right. And, and I only believe what we do is increase the average. So that is a, a bit of a slight on what we think we do in human performance. Okay. If we're doing that with kids, that is the greatest that's the greatest of achievements. If we can improve the average performance physically of kids, it creates so many more opportunities for those. That's the, that's my wheelhouse. That's the thing that, that I, I think about at night is, is giving the, is creating platform that can give the opportunity to, to uh, enjoy succeed. Succeed is a huge thing that we, we, for some reason, we try to remove, going to your, some of your questions for later, from a PE setting, we try to remove success. And it doesn't come from testing. It comes from overcoming a challenge. And if, you, if we can create a challenge of which Martha, the 13 stone, nine-year-old can can overcome physically it starts to embed first psychologically something positive there's a positive intrinsic um success there that might uh, imbue her with the enthusiasm to try another one whereas before she would have she would have happily sat behind the letter she got from her mom saying she can't do pe because it hurts her joints and we want her to have success so that she that's where enjoyment comes from. Kids won't do stuff they don't enjoy and they don't enjoy stuff they're not good at. Yeah. And it, it just going back to, again, teaching virtually, we've had loads of movement challenges which we've created as a department and kids who aren't your sort of stereotypically sporty kids have been buzzing to send us videos. Oh, I managed to do this. And obviously normally 
challenges are based on going back to what we talked about earlier how many reps can you do in 30 seconds which rightly or wrongly is naturally going to bias the kid who's metabolically more able um who probably has been like you said maybe he's been brought up in a household that mum was a sportsman dad was a sportsman's got a brother to play with um something that i've just remembered the point i was going to make earlier in terms of your mechanic analogy um an analogy that stephen jones used in a podcast that i did with him um is he said don't dig the well so deep that you lose the bucket which for me is you bring up a kid and you're like right gonna be a footballer it's like gonna be a footballer it's like they're eight years old mate like <laughs> like just you know enjoy the process expose them to different skills i don't worry about whether they're going to enter the premier league because what happens when that dream dies that is so brilliant but also works perfectly as is um uh to make me look like a hypocrite um with superheroes in that we don't test but there is uh monitoring of assessment that that kids reward themselves with stars um, and uh, because of the data set we have, we can stream for uh, five different sports. So ballet, gymnastics, uh, swimmers, rugby and football and footballers across the board make the slowest progress of movement mastery because they think they are awesome. That's my opinion is that they think they're awesome. That's that's how I've my experience that they generally are the top dog in the PE, in the primary class and they they have no time for discovery and learning because they already think they're amazing or maybe they already have limited movement um, skills because they've done the same thing so many times in football in the in the pre-academy academies yeah um, yeah who knows uh it's funny you say that because um speaking to uh, ben pullen who his research or part of his research has been about movement competency in children and he was talking to me about a paper that he'd come across as part of his research which looked at and i'm paraphrasing here so i'm gonna have to dig back into that podcast to find out but they looked at different sports and which sports actually improved movement competency and i think from memory the only ones that did was i think dance maybe ballet but definitely dance uh, and gymnastics um and I agree with you in terms of uh, football as an example. And I think, again, not to stereotype, but I think a lot of that might come down to the fact of um, in, in, well, in being a national sport in England, if you're the kid who's good at football, the PE teacher suddenly knows you. Maybe other teachers know you as being the kid who's good at football. Um, and then, I mean, I see, we see it all the time at school. Are we playing football today, sir? Uh, no, that's not what's in the curriculum. Or can we play football? Um, well, I mean, we can do something that looks like football. And, you know, just such a narrow skill set. But then even, for example, I'll drip feed in in my warm-up with, like, my year sevens. Um, we'll do something like, I don't know, pretend you're jumping for a header and land on one leg. Um, and the kid, who, uh, the kid who's um, the best at football can't land on one leg. And you're like, there's a clear discrepancy and you're going to spend lots of time doing single leg movements and these movements need to have been drip fed but all you've done is practice with the ball well ironically usually they're good at landing on their left leg yeah yeah um yeah but but so if we if we develop this into a primary school setting from a pe perspective the pe teacher won't know that the pe teacher won't know 
the primary school PE teacher won't understand that that even if the goal is to to um, work on uh, single leg standing skills so uh, standing on one leg so i'm going to be a flamingo so i'm going to eat like a flamingo so going to create a hip hip hinge so i'm going to hop and hold so i can catch in a variety of positions while i'm stood on one leg if the goal is to expand that skill set they don't know that the footballer is going to be better on their left leg than their right leg because they do it all the time and there's a reason for that. So what do we need to do? We need to conversely work on their right leg, um, work, challenge them to work on their right leg a little bit more. But that's one of the um, underpinning reasons why we as movement experts should be involved in this and we should be creating um, workplace CPD for um, teachers to, to nurture their understanding of movement and of their kids' movement. And uh, just to dive into that question a little bit more, um, something that I've got jotted down is uh, how to provide that CPD without either A, uh, overwhelming teachers and thinking, oh God, where do I start with this? Um, and B, without it becoming, which I think um, I've certainly been guilty of where I've delivered a CPD, feedback's been really good. And then two weeks later, go back to doing what we've always done. Um, so how do we, yeah, how do we give enough that's usable, but not give so much that it's just, oh, I can't be bothered. I'll go back to just rolling the ball up. I am coming to the conclusion that it's almost impossible um, because of the marketplace talking from a business sense as it is, that unless we change the desired outcome. So the only way to really impact how a teacher you can impact like one or two or 20 from a 400 workshop um, cohort, but you can't impact the industry unless the goal, which is set by the government, which is set by Ofsted changes. So unless there's some kind of desired, the output of these kids needs to be in, similar to maths. If, if I see a level six kid of maths in year six, they can do this, 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 this. So then I can put them on this pathway when they get to secondary school. Until we see that, we can't get um, the, we can't upskill in the right way because the intent on, on every different school is so completely different. There's no joined up thinking. Um, we get the, the people leading PE across the country, it changes from um, some people with an athletic background that want their kids to be, want kids to be more athletic and engaged in sport. You've got a, a couple, but we're kind of getting out of this, that are ex-sports people and they are championing the being a sports person, but they're very aware that those kids that can't innately be sports people, so, so they... Pretend would be a, a harsh word, but there's a little bit of pretense that we care about getting about um, understanding the kid that's not um, athletic. So we have to figure out a way of, of getting them engaged. But from my experiences that getting the, the kid that isn't athletic engaged, it seems to be doing something sat down. That's their conclusion. Let's do something that they can already do, which they might like and they don't feel bad about themselves. And until we can change that, I don't know how we 
we we nudge the behavior of a large portion of, of of primary school teachers and and secondary school teachers they can be nudged because they they used to be sports people at some point they end up being p teachers because they were good at sport that's i think that's the large stereotype but it fits mostly that they still participate in sport i think maybe the quality of of uh, pedagogical approach in these uh, you know it's diverse it's, it's massive the, the range you'll get some that greatly care about their kids and want to nurture the all of their kids and you'll get some that want to be friends with the kid that's going to be a footballer it's just human nature the thing that we need to change the country is is desired outcome at primary school level so we can impact teachers and give them a few more skills so they can identify good shapes how I conduct workshops is to practically engage with those primary school teachers, get them rolling around on the floor and then looking at each other and going, oh, that's the shape that I just saw on the on the um, presentation up there. And so they can start to identify the appropriate shapes that we're after, the good fundamental movement patterns. And, and then they can start to embed that into their practice rather than getting a whole new lesson that I'm not giving lesson plans out here. You have your lesson. My, the way I think about it is you, you're a teacher, you know your kids, you have a lesson plan, you have an idea in mind. If I can just, we talked about this off, off um, pod earlier, was that the only underlying thread I see in all primary schools is that at some point they will do marching. And on the, on, the, on the surface, it seems stupid, right? And when I've gone into different schools, I see it taught in a very robotic way. And the outcome of the marching, I'm not entirely sure of the, of the intent, but it, it, it's very robotic. There's shout, it's, it's following commands. There's lots of shouting going on or, or a variety of let's giggle at this point so we know the kids are having fun. And with a little bit of understanding of, of how a kid sees themselves and fits within movement and sport, we can really nurture that same lesson into teamwork, into uh, empowering leadership and putting them in small groups, timing, rhythm, coordination. We can challenge them with lift your, um, with getting them to, to, get their knee above the hip so you start to create like a hip lock in position then make a loud noise make a quiet noise with your foot and you're talking a variety of force production can you do it while you're skipping can you march in place while you're skipping can you march forwards sideways um can you march up this hill can you do it with a log in the way can you then we can challenge the exact same p lesson with a specific physiological and behavioral adaptations in place, but just with a little, you know, uh, change of perspective from, from whoever's delivering the session. I think what you're saying there kind of reminds me of something that Howard Green spoke about with dealing with kids. And in terms of looking at the research, uh, the most LTAD models talk about it being relatively unstructured with kids, which Howard and I agree is, I would argue, couldn't be further from the truth. It's just the structure is disguised as you said a teacher watching you do what you've just described there 
is probably not thinking, oh, this is similar to the hip lock position that we see in other sports. Or for example, um, this is improving range of motion by bringing that knee up higher. Or this is improving proprioception by landing with a loud noise versus a quiet noise. Um, so what I, yeah, what I really like about that is you're giving, this is specifically what they're doing, but um, here's the sort of hidden structure and here's the things we're actually working on versus right, everyone do the same, knee up, knee down, let's all have a laugh and we just sort of tick that box onto the next one. It, it's, it's similar to me in that the way I would teach maths, if, I, if, if, if my wife gave me a lesson plan for, the, for uh, three maths lessons of, of year four kids, I would read this lesson plan and then I would tell the kids to follow this lesson plan, right? If she taught these kids the lesson plan, she would be getting the best development out of those kids um, at learning and understanding numeracy in with this intent. She is an expert in that stuff. And I don't see experts in movement and in coaching, teaching PE in primaries. And that's okay. But how can they be experts when they've done very often, this is without exaggeration, one afternoon of PE training in an entire three year period of doing a B ed. How can they be experts? Yeah. We are experts. We have done three, four, five, six years of, of uh, academic study. And then um, I've done 20 years of, of in-play practical experience. We are the experts. We need to be doing this on the rock face and guiding these kids and teachers as much as we can. If we get, for an example would be like, if you get um, anybody listening to this, contact me, I will give you superheroes so that you can go and contact five or six of your local schools and you can go and go and work one afternoon in each school of those five schools and develop the, the, their kids fundamental movements right because we are the ones that can lead to change here and if we start um coaching kids and giving kids the opportunity to understand the good shapes and the fundamental movements and and where they appear um within themselves but also in their in their environment and then that they know how best appropriately to move that they can see it in all of their sports that other that the teachers in their schools will start to adopt it and it will become common language to them as well and then it changes everything you mentioned um, just a second ago about your when you deliver CPD, you don't, for example, say, here's the lesson plan. Um, so from a logistics standpoint uh, with your superheroes delivery or how you get people to uh, deliver it, what does that, and again, I know this is missing out massive context, but what does that look like? Because I'm just thinking um, with my teacher hat on, uh, potentially five iPads, a load of props, which I imagine kids go mental for, um, 30 kids, one teacher, um, how does that lesson look like? So I'm assuming that they probably, or maybe they do, uh, the strength lab suit here is for the entire lesson. Is it drip fed? Is it circuit based? Um, how does that look logistically, if that makes sense? Well, as I said, I, I, these are the minimum standards. These are the minimum 
tools that I want your kids to learn, right? In an ideal world, you will adopt those into your PE lesson. But sadly, that's not how it's worked. It's been kind of a barrier um, in that I'm not providing lesson plans and scheme of works for the PE teacher that is full-time, that's their job. They're like, well, can't you do this for me? No, that's never the point. It was never the point. Um, but so it's been reduced from the ideal of getting S&Cs into, uh, into schools to be delivering this stuff into kids teaching themselves because teachers are too busy and their focus is not really on what's going to go on in that PE lesson. So I'm fully embracing that, that schools, the worst part of schools is that they have iPads everywhere. So like you said, five iPads, we split the group into five, uh, we split the class into five groups. Each one becomes uh, the superhero of the week. So one of them is Iron Man, one of them is Spider-Man, one is Superman, whatever. Um, and there'll be a leader within each of those. So so how the session works is we, is that I will talk, if I'm going in, um, I will talk to the teacher before and see what their to current topic is. In a primary school, there'll be some kind of um, geographic element to that. And then I'll pick uh, five animals from whatever their um, region that they're studying. So it links into their subject. And um, I have uh, two crawling, a swimming, a balancing and a jumping animal that they have to pick out from their, their geographic location, um, the thing that they're looking at currently. And we work on those um, as a little warm-up drill of them going through crawling around the room sometimes we add a little game element of this you have to there'll, there'll be opposing animals so like a shark and a dolphin and then they have to stay away from that or they have to get to the islands you know this typical PE stuff but a little bit linked to their subject and we start to look at good shapes so I can tend to see as I'm sure you can as a coach the good movers in in that warm-up I will identify those good movers. And if I've got five of them, I'll put them as the leaders of each of the groups. They have the iPad. They look at um, the video of their exercises. They, they go through the coaching points of their exercises and um, they, um, they'll go off with their group and go and practice themselves amongst themselves, looking at what they, they should be doing. After like 10 minutes, they'll go to the middle of the group, middle of the class, in the middle of the hall, and they will um, demonstrate. And then they'll go around and spend five minutes coaching all of the other groups. And they'll rotate with each. And every week there'll be a different leader and they'll have a different superhero the next week. So they all, each of them have a turn of being each superhero and each of them have a turn of being a leader. And at the end, they will go and assess each other one another with the little iPads, they're mean. Uh, so you don't get a star unless you absolutely deserved it from a five-year-old. Oh, absolutely. And I can imagine there's probably uh, no worse a situation than having to deal with than uh, one kid saying that they've had their star taken off them by another kid. Um, yeah, something, okay. something I meant to ask earlier, um, probably should have kicked off the podcast with it, but hey-ho, um, it was just where the idea of um, superheroes for developing movement competency uh, came from and what that process looked like from a coaching perspective. I suppose there was the talk um, uh, of how do we engage kids and, and how do we brand in this current climate, how do we brand it so that kids can identify with it? 
And it just came about at the same time, pretty much as the first Avengers movie started. And that was probably the most popular thing in the world at the time. Five years before, it might have been some kind of Star Wars. Um, and we, we uh, so originally, they were completely different superheroes than the ones we had. We had, um, I, I was looking at how can I model a, a strand of, of these exercises against something that looks resembles uh, the the movement of this character and so originally we had the thing from um fantastic four with the bashing um and we had silver surfer for lying on his surfboard creating that plank position and working around that map or plank position um and they got quickly over the, the course of maybe the first 12 incarnations of the of the website they they gradually faded out and got replaced by more recognizable figures just from talking to the kids which 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 people were more popular with them because we want them to be more identifiable and they ended up over the course of maybe six months of the first year becoming iron man spider-man uh, thor superman and hulk um, and we tried to build character traits within there, um, like with a big Hulk smash. And then we got inflatable hammers for um, the Thor, because then you've got an external um, stimulus to, to aim for, basically. So, you, so with a Thor, uh, with, the, with Thor's hammer, you can change where the hammer's going to hit on the floor. You give them a target, and it completely changes their, their lunge range and intensity and pattern and so um they it, it was really around engagement at the time we were really intent on getting a girl i have a daughter who's now 16 but she was like 10 11 at the time and um and it was it was kind of it was imperative at the time to get a super a female superhero just because you want to you know uh, develop those relationships for those girls but um while we're in our loose market research with the kids probably three or four hundred kids we were dealing with at the time they didn't identify with any women and there were no big famous female superheroes it was just part of the time only five years ago um black widow was the was the single female and she didn't have any moves unless um unless kids are now going to be uh, jumping around people's people's necks and swinging their legs around their throat to drag them to the floor, which is probably above the, the fundamental level that we can, uh, we can get kids to be doing. But kids didn't even know who they were, because if you remember the first Avengers movie was really an adult thing. It was the beginning of watering down to the kids. Um, so yeah, there were no identifiable girls to attach to. So that was, it felt, always felt a little bit of a, uh, a problem to us. But in the first three years, I didn't have a single question about the gender of of uh, the superheroes, which is really interesting. We get it quite a lot now, but yeah, not at the time, not once. Yeah, I mean, all my brain can think of is uh, Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head losing their genders, but story for a, story <laughs> for a different day. Um, uh, so my next question relates to um, the work that I've seen you do with uh, Derby County's Academy and their girls. Um, because I've seen you do a lot of superhero stuff with them. So I'm intrigued as to whether from an engagement perspective, they just bought into it straight away or whether 
um, it was just because it was something new from, I suppose, the traditional strength and conditioning that they'd been uh, used to. Um, so do you just want to chat about uh, how that process evolved with them? My experience with that and with all of the teenagers that we work with were particularly ones that had had some kind of traditional, we talk traditional, but SNC has really been only for 10 years in, in any kind of academy yeah. setting, um, that they were just happy they weren't being tested. Um, and the things I ask them to do are, they can be for teenagers, a little embarrassing, particularly for girls. I learned quickly that um, the dominant, um, the most important factor was um, that they are a little bit self-conscious. So uh, it, was a, it was a matter of nurturing ways to overcome that and identifying the girls that weren't so self-conscious at the front, but then also trying to nurture the ones that were more self-conscious and largely them seeing a bald 40-year-old dude um, make it, an idiot of himself kind of broke the ice enough for them to join in and ridicule uh, similarly. So um, I nurtured the things that, that they were each good at and they were all they were all good at some stuff. You don't get to an academy level without having some athletic skills. Um, and um, yeah, they, they picked that up quite quickly and they were, I don't know if you, how much you work with girls, but it's a very, very different um, experience to working with academy boys. Yeah, definitely. They're collaborative. They want to work together. They don't want to stand out. They want to be the same, the same as everybody. So if you can get one or two of the leaders, they're all going to do it. And I was fortunate enough to um, align with the with the right girls in the um, in the squad early on that they were the champions and um, and they they drove the culture within themselves. So I just nudged them to do this challenge this week or this one or this one or this one, and then gradually that they they had a big toolbox of, of the things that we wanted to, to do with the different uh, types of drills, the curved running or, or, or the hurdles, jumping, hopping, plyo stuff. Cause I only get half an hour with each group anyway, um, that they would, I would create a block. This is my desired outcome. And so I would just uh, change the intensity or complexity, but they would pick the exercises for that week. Yeah. And I suppose that in itself uh, differentiates for those who I don't know might feel silly doing I don't know the slower versions the more coordinatively progressive versions um, so yeah they can still work on a similar outcome without necessarily uh, feeling like they're going to embarrass themselves yeah very much but I think largely I worked from the opposite angle in that we would do the more complex versions so superheroes was always only part of warm-up um, with them and we would do the more complex ones so everybody fell over then once everybody had fallen over there was no risk of falling over anymore yeah and so, so that would be it i'll get one or two girls that could pull a backflip and if they could pull a backflip you're never going to embarrass them um but they were largely didn't want to stand out anyway so they were always kind of embarrassed but um but yeah it removed that barrier for sure. If you, if you make the, if, if I, I'm also willing to fall over, if you can get that out of the way early with everybody, then you kind of, you can just get on with it. And they kind of enjoyed it. And, and they could see quickly 
that it was harder than they, that they expected. So there was a more of a, uh, a coordination and physical challenge than they were expecting to do, do by doing these kids exercises. Um, and that, that gave them the buy-in because they're academy kids that, that see themselves playing for England one day. So they, they were serious athletes in their minds. Yeah, I think breaking down those kind of barriers is really important. And just to cycle back to a sort of theme that I asked you about earlier, and that was about what Strength Lab Superheroes looks like in the context of a lesson. Um, and you basically said in your CPD, look, this isn't me saying do it exactly like this. I'm just giving you another tool to your toolbox. Um, we talk about sport within PE. And I know, for example, I've been quite vocal on previous podcasts about I suppose separating is the wrong word, but I've used separating sport from PE. Um, and I suppose that would make people think, oh, so we're going to do an entire lesson on, I don't know, these physical literacy skills. And I was trying to say, no, it's not one or the other. It's just a tool in the toolbox. So how would you go about uh, whether we use sport as a theme or not? Um, developing physical literacy, I suppose, within a sporting context so kids can kind of see the relevance I think it depends completely on uh, the age and the, the training history of, of which cohort you're talking about, really. Uh, so, so oh, go on. Go on. I was going to say, let's uh, just just for ease, because it's a cohort that I particularly enjoy working with, but uh, year sevens and eights, so 11 to 13. Right. So I would always use superheroes as the warm up from that and then expand with um, with some of the shapes uh, that they will be using within the sport that you're going to be teaching afterwards. And then I would have, uh, I would stop randomly throughout whatever sporting drill that they're going to be doing in the games afterwards and go, what can you see? And they start to see this, the shape that they're making in the warm-ups, which then start, then reinforces the importance of those things that they're working on. And then we can expand that with intensity and, um, complexity um and you get much more of a bind to that and if we can if if i can pinpoint uh, this is a good version of this shape and and can you see a bad version of this shape then it's if you can make anything competitive for kids they love that and they love ridiculing each other too so uh, so a whole little bit of that that comes in there too and from a secondary perspective just the, the coaching style of that is that Going into sports, we you already have a barrier of those kids that can do that sport already. So if you're playing hockey you, you, uh, in secondary school, you're going to have two, two kids that uh, have got posh parents or parents that played hockey. So that they've played hockey their whole life and they're superheroes compared to everybody else. And it's a different sport. So there's barely any point playing with those kids because they the things they can do has got nothing to do. It's just a different sport to the rest. It's like playing table tennis with, with an expert. Um, in football is going to be obviously different. There's going to be more kids that can play well, but the how I would approach coaching these things is to add individual constraints to to um, each of the kids at their appropriate skill level, so that they're, they're achieving something each in, independently from one another. So if you've got the superhero that can flick from the halfway line to the top corner, that they suddenly you find the thing that they're not the best at or that they're lesser at and you award points for that to them and then you award a point uh, uh, so they can't score from from um the the half 
um, but they get a point for their team if they pass to somebody that scores in the final third. Or you get you nurture somebody to um, they get they get a point if they can flick from the final third of the um, of the pitch. Or you uh, you get a point uh, you get three points for this kid who's you know is working on dribbling that week if they can beat somebody. Um, and they get one point if they beat if they don't beat them, but they did attempt to dribble. And then you you're gradually racking up points for the team. It's not about actual goals. It's about um, developing those skills within that team, within that within that environment of playing hockey. Yeah, it reminds me. I mean, I, one of the CPDs I did do on my teacher training, which I did actually really rate, was um, we had some guys come in from. Uh, the, there's an FA Teachers Award, and they have these things called challenge cards, which basically you set off into two teams, and then you try and achieve these challenges and they're not necessarily related to scoring a goal. Like you said, it might be beating a player, performing this kind of, I don't know, tactical maneuver. Um, and I think it's great because so many kids get focused on, did we win? Did we lose? And for example, I sometimes I deliberately do it where I have the really good team against the rubbish team and then condition the good team to within an inch of their life. Um, and they still want to know what score it was, even though, for example, only winning two nil against a team who, doesn't know their ass from their elbow isn't that good if you're playing in an academy yeah 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 exactly that you need to gamify it in a way that that um imbues success that gives the challenges a kid in a way that they can get some success from that from their individual actions and then uh, from a sports perspective as part of a team so they also feel like they did something which helped their team too because that's really fundamental to sports yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's qu quite an embar embarrassing reflection, really. But um, I, in the conversations I've had with my kids whilst we've been teaching PE virtually, um, one of our challenges, amongst a lot of movement challenges, we also ask kids for their favourite sporting moment, uh, hoping they would say stuff like, I don't know, England winning the Rugby World Cup or, you know, whatever. And some kids were saying stuff like, oh, I scored two goals in primary school. And you're like... Wow, they've like really attached onto that winning mentality, which is fine. But you think of all the sport you've been exposed to that one time when you're in primary school, and this is normally from kids who, for the record, aren't very sporting. But that one moment of success has stayed with them, whereas you know, to a teacher or to somebody else, that was just another day. I think that is amazing, and I think that should be used when um, talking about those kids about developing programs for those kids that don't like PE because they do like PE. They love the opportunity to like PE. They would love the opportunity for other kids in their class to like them for doing something good at PE. Give them the opportunity. Yeah, I, I remember one of my year sevens, um, bless him, he's, he's definitely a bit uh, overweight, like not your sporty kid. And uh, we're playing with what well, Rounders was on the curriculum. So we're doing a condition game. So he takes this, I was like, take your hands out your pockets. So then puts his hands in his hat. I'm like, take your hands out your hat. And then he's, <laughs> then he's like, puts it there. He's like, how much will you give me if I catch it in here? I was like, you can have a house point. First shot, bang, flies straight in the hat. And this kid is like the hero of the lesson and everyone's applauding him. Um, but we so infrequently give kids like that the opportunity to shine um, or the opportunity, like you said, if you give them the opportunity, they will enjoy it. But for example, if you're that kid who's rubbish, who can't add one on one and all your lessons are about quadratic equations, obviously they're not going to engage in that lesson. 
exactly. And uh, just in just in wrapping things up, um, if you were to give the listeners one key take home from uh, today's podcast, what would you like that to be? Jesus, not Jesus. Um... <laughs> it would be to go and find out the thing that you enjoy coaching the most, and then figure out somebody that's better at it already and email them and see if you can create a connection with them because in my experience they'll happily help and as long as you are honest and humble in how you approach they will happily help you in your path to to mastering the thing that you that you enjoy doing most and then go get some experience doing it that's a lovely answer um and this this one i'm intrigued by um if you could go and observe uh, one coach, one teacher, whatever, with their athletes or with their kids, um, who would you choose to observe and why? If I could, I don't know from my, my, my own perspective now, I'm old, uh, but if I could recommend you go and see somebody coach, it would be go to your... Go to one of your inner city schools, a secondary school, and find out their good PE teacher and go and watch them, how they control their group of 50 or 60 insane, rabid kids that don't want to do anything but beat each other and see how they control the group, see how they encourage one uh, participation of one another within that group. I think that would probably be the most important thing for your career, not what I would like to see would be, I, I don't know, Charlie Francis. Sorry, it's not possible, but that would be very, very, <laughs> very cool. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I've been fortunate enough to watch and be around and chat with some of the best of our kind of industry coaches. So um, there are lots and lots and lots of great ones. Um, but find yours, I think, rather than listen to me. Jesus, that's a solid point. But what I love there is uh, you've kind of highlighted uh, the sort of driver behind this whole podcast in the sense of I really enjoy speaking to people from high performance sport, but I also really enjoy speaking to someone who, like yourself, could engage a bunch of five year olds. And I think uh, there's often it's easy for people who don't work in these settings to be like, as an example, oh, a Charlie Francis while working with Olympic medalists therefore is a better coach than this person who works at five yards and like well no coaching is coaching and they're just different skill sets applied in different environments and both there's not to say that your level of outcome in terms of a gold medal somehow makes you a better or worse coach than somebody who works with little children it, you wouldn't even make this comparison right about two lawyers one lawyer that worked for um bearings bank um in in manhattan um on on acquisitions and a divorce lawyer from manchester you wouldn't compare the two their job titles are the same they're both lawyers they've both been to law school but their skill sets are so very different and they can both be brilliant yeah yeah i can't remember which podcast i've listened to it's somebody who's involved in youth sport and they basically said that they got into youth sport after they got basically um 
heard a few honest truths from their line manager who basically told them to get lost when he was like, oh, I want to work with, I don't know, the under 16s, so then I can work with the 18s, so then I can work with the 21s. And he's like, look, if you don't want to be here with the under 16s, um, then, or if you just see this as a fast track to the first team, he's like, I don't want you here because this is a very specific skill set. It's not just a step ladder until you get to the 21s on the first team. Exactly. And you, if you want to speak to anybody in the industry about this, you should speak to Des Ryan, who um, he, he oversees and has created a culture at, at Arsenal which champions the great um, coaches of youth and children and nurtures those skill sets. And they couldn't be further from what's required um, at, at the, I, I don't even say elite level because it's nonsense, at the adult level, adult professional level. They're just different. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you've got a jacket on it that says first team or elite, then you're elite. Let's just ignore any sort of physical or athletic capabilities. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, and by all means, um, by all means, feel free to talk about your own stuff. But if you had to talk about one recommended resource, so an app, a podcast, obviously the stuff you do with Strength Lab Superheroes, Oh my god! Um, yeah, as I said before, anybody just hit me up. I'll uh, I'll give you access. Um, there is uh, I don't know where my phone is. Um, a, for any sports scientists or anybody working in the field on pitches, there is uh, go and look up the the apps for Sprint Timer. There's a whole series of them. Um, Nordics, uh, Jump Height. And so basically there's this one dude who was awesome, Marco, I think his name is, and he's developed, I've been using Sprint Timer for two or three years, but he's, he's nurtured this, he's, he's created this whole battery and they cost like 20 quid and it will save you, I think the equivalent of 27,000 pounds of actual equipment, of timing gates, of um, range of motion, of um, detection, it has some biomechanic monitoring and force plates. So go check those out. That's that's well worth the your twenty quid. I'm gonna well, I'm gonna check. I think I know what you're on about. But I'm gonna chuck that in the uh, chuck that in the show notes. And uh, finally, I think you've kind of mentioned it. Um, you kind of mentioned it throughout the podcast. But if people want to hear more about your work or get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, Twitter, if you don't mind me swearing a lot, um, Simon Brundish, or uh, UK underscore Strength Lab. Um, we are Strength Lab Superheroes on Instagram or um, Simon at strengthlab.co.uk. There you go. Awesome. Uh, thank you very much, Simon. Unless there's uh, any parting shot that you'd like to add, I think that's a nice place to wrap up. Check out a new, you've talked about Howard uh, a couple of times during this. Uh, yes. We have a, a, a new um venture uh, which uses utilizes uh both uh, well 35 years worth of experience of that um work in athletic development and his within athletic development of tennis um and we utilize superheroes as the strength element of this of a program we call the smash program which has mobility agility stability and honing coordination um and it's called tennis super movers we'll be rolling it out to athletic super movers across the board but this is the next version this is what happens after you do strength exercises or really the fundamentals of movement into locomotor and then start to have external cueing and rhythm and 
um, start moving about. And this is good, good fun for kids and developed by, you know, people that kind of know what they're talking about. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I'll chuck a links. I'll chuck links to those in the show notes as well. Um, thank you very much for giving up so much of your time, Simon. It's been a pleasure. It's always great to chat, dude. Thank you for listening to episode 47 of the Platform to Perform podcast with myself, as always, Todd Davidson, and today's guest, Simon Brundish. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd appreciate it if you could share it with a teacher, coach, or athlete that you feel would benefit from listening. If you'd like to go one better and support the podcast, then head over to www.patreon.com forward slash Todd Davidson P2P Coaching. In exchange for subscribing and supporting the podcast, you'll receive exclusive access to my educational strength conditioning content, all 30 of my calisthenics kids lessons designed to improve strength, confidence and movement skill in children in an age-appropriate and child-friendly way. And finally, you'll also receive exclusive access to all of the strength and conditioning programs that I've released via this page. Thank you very much for listening and I'll catch you in the next episode.